risk-taking and believing in yourself and never shrinking yourself. I think that's critically important for everyone, maybe especially for women, because I think you know, many things have circumstantially caused us to doubt ourselves or shrink ourselves or diminish ourselves or accept less than we are. And we absolutely cannot allow it. You're listening to the Almost 30 Podcast, hosted by Krista Williams and Lindsay Simsek. Almost 30 started as a conversation about the transition from our 20s to our 30s. But then we realized life is full of transitions. So we expanded our mission. We are an intuition-led, wellness-focused lifestyle podcast that promises to deliver authentic conversations, diverse points of view, and insights rooted in optimism, growth, and intention. The Almost 30 Nation community is a group of purposeful dreamers who are smart, passionate, and always seeking the full potential in every aspect of their lives. At Almost 30, we're making magic together. We dream it, and then we do it. Thanks so much for tuning into the Almost 30 Podcast. Here we go. Hey guys. Hey everyone. Welcome back to Almost 30 Podcast. We are so glad you are here. If it's your first time, we are a podcast that started during our transition from our 20s to our 30s. Yeah, shit was wild. We didn't know what was going on and we had a lot of questions. We were having conversations that we felt like we weren't alone in having and all the feelings that we were feeling. So we decided to bring it to the airwaves. Didn't know how to podcast, but started anyway. And it's become something so much more. Yeah. It's been a beautiful journey and we are thankful that you tuned in. So thank you to your friend that shared this with you or however you got here and to our OGs. Thanks so much for always being, you know, such a beautiful friend to us. Truly, truly. I was just telling Krista before that I found myself on my ex's wedding website. Do those live in, in perpetuity? I think so. Wow. Unless you delete them. You should delete them. People I think so should too. should delete them. I love so much. I went to that, <laughs> my friend's my friend's wedding. That was a very, 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 very lavish wedding. Oh yeah. And the wedding website didn't even have like the date on it. <laughs> I was like, dude, they're so funny because they are yeah. like, the wedding was very lavish, but they're not very pretentious. Mm-hmm. And the wedding website was like, show, so shoddy from Zola. It's like, show up, show if up. If you feel like it. Honestly. <laughs> I was like, black this would tie. Be. <laughs> this would be, but I'm, I'm really liking though. It seems like more people are doing the um, email invites. Yes. I've had a few email invites lately. Thank God. Really enjoy that. I heard invites could run you. They're like tens of thousands yeah, of dollars. Yeah, could be like $10,000. No thanks. It's like if you get cardboard, if you get whatever. I mean, I would, uh, I will not be doing that. Completely. Will not be doing that. Yeah. But, you know. Anyway. I, yeah, I was, it, it, I think I do soft stock people like from my past because I, it's like exposure therapy. So I want to I make sure that I'm good. And I see it. I'm like, cool. I'm happy for them. <laughs> I just think it's, it's such a, it just is so weird because that was you. Yeah. It's voyeuristic in a way. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And then I'm, I'm someone who kind of plays scenarios in my head as if they were to happen. So if I were to see them in an airport or something, like I'd go through the whole scene, right? <laughs> like I'm wearing something amazing. Definitely not at the airport. Definitely looking amazing. <laughs> and it's, I, for me, it's just a mind fuck because it was me in that situation and I felt so very close to them. And I guess I had an understanding at the time of 
that my feelings were more definite than they were. Mm -hmm. And so as I get older, it's a realization of the, the fact of your, your feelings change, people change, you, people move in and out of your life. No one is forever in your life. You know, we say that people are like, oh, they're going to be in your lives forever. And that's not true. So you just kind of learn that a lot of the things that you thought, you know, when your best friend from high school, you have your 10 best friends, you're like, you will be my bridesmaids. And you really thought that, you know, you truly thought that. And then five years later, you don't even talk to them. And the same with college and the same as you get older. So it's just a weird thing for me to always think that during that situation at that time with that person or at that place, I felt for sure confident about Mm -hmm how I felt about them. They did about me. And I felt for sure confident about our future. And I was wrong. <laughs> totally. <laughs> and I was wrong. And I almost feel this like sense of wanting validation from those people that like what we had was real. Even though I knew it was real, I just, for some reason, it would make me feel really good if we were to have a really quick, really brief two minute conversation that was like, hey, of course, I love being together, man. Of course. But I'm happy now. So of course. And I- <laughs> Like real talk about like what you felt like. Real talk. We've talked about this before. We're like, we would love to have lunch with our exes. I would love that. That would be a great show. They would. Lunch with your ex. Lunch with your ex. Invite invite the new girls. I don't care. (laughs) Invite them. I would love to. I'm going to do myself. I'm going to get a blowout and I'm going to have glam squad. Come on. Honestly, (laughs) honestly, it would be a complete blast. (laughs) So we're back in the swing. We've been traveling quite a bit. We had, you know, a few stops and. Let me tell you what, I want to be alone right now. Yeah, man. I need some time. I've yeah. been, I don't know. I just don't feel well today. I haven't been eating really well. I haven't been sleeping well. I haven't been doing anything to mitigate the bad feelings. So I just feel off. And yeah, yeah the exhaustion is becoming more than exhaustion, I guess. it's kind. Yeah. Of, it feels like it's making me sad. And I'm like, no, like you're exhausted for a good reason. And I'm like, I'm not sad, but I feel a little bit sad. Of course. (laughs) You know, I think that's a great point. I do feel actually, I think that's a great point too, because I do feel like whenever I feel sad in that way, it is exhaustion in a lot of ways. For me, it's either exhaustion or it's my eating has been too much sugar, not nourishing enough. So my body's kind of trying to Mm -hmm. mitigate against the energy lack, you know, it could be too much caffeine. So for me, oftentimes that is what it is, is that I haven't been eating or nourishing myself or I haven't been sleeping. Mm -hmm. And I was actually listening to a really good podcast today with Rich Roll, um, who I haven't actually been listening to very consistently anymore. It's a good reminder. But it was with Cal Newport and it was on June 10th and it was on digital minimalism. And... I'm, I just started, I'm, I'm probably at minute 25. And if you actually just start at minute 20, he talks a lot about with Cal Newport about the constant companion that our phone is. And I loved that languaging. I was like, that is the damn truth because mm-hmm. it it's like always playing. There's always a podcast on, there's always a, a YouTube on, there's always a conversation being had. There's always something for you to come back to. There's always something for you to go to. It allows you to never be alone. It allows you to never go inward. There's just so much within that conversation too. It was also very interesting that when the addition of the like came to be with Facebook, it was around the time of Facebook's IPO. 
So they needed usage to be at its highest. They needed people's screen time with Facebook to be at its highest. So they went to casinos. They went to all these different places to figure out how to gamify the system, to gamify Facebook more so, so that people would continue to come back. And they added the like. So now with each time we check it, you're getting the social validation or the social reassurance or whatever it is through the different channels that we have social to make us continue to come back and to make us or to give us like insight into where we stand socially. Yes. Yes. I was watching on that note, the great hack on Netflix. And they're talking about basically, I just pulled up a little uh, synopsis to help me, but it was the basically how your data, how Facebook and other digital platforms are collecting your data and you have like a digital footprint and basically how that is not something that we own. And so, I mean, the whole thing with the Trump election and, you know. And the old people face. Did we talk oh, about I that mean, app? Honey, every, catch me, catch me knowing it was zero before ever doing it. Zero. When I saw tons of people doing the app with the old people face and then everyone found out they were taking all of your data. They were actually asking for access to your photos, to your location. That's the thing is like, we have to always be wary of these apps like that, that are very silly, that are meant to be viral, that are meant to just get us giving access to our face. I'm kind of weird now too about like photos and people, even in that old people app, I didn't want them to have access to my data. I had no interest in, in doing that, although it's funny, but I don't want someone to have access to the dimensions of my face. Think about your fingerprint. Your face is also very unique. So I don't want someone to have access to like all the points of my face to be able to replicate it. I mean, and the fact that Apple has facial recognition. Exactly. I mean, huh? Exactly. So this was a really, really interesting documentary, but they talk about Cambridge Analytica and this whistleblower, Brittany Kaiser. Much of the documentary was centered around her and her coming out and how difficult it was and you know, how she's this sole woman seemingly comparatively to the team and was a part of a lot of the fucked up shit that went on with the election with Cambridge Analytica with Brexit. And now she's coming out bravely and admitting and giving evidence that Cambridge Analytica was a part of it all, but wow. it's just really fascinating at a higher level. The The guy who made it um, talks about his daughter. He's like, my daughter's going to have like 70,000 pieces of data, like specific to her that will be available to anyone, you know, like the government or, you know, something like Cambridge Anal- Analytica to sell to governments around the world for voter information and how to target them on Facebook. I mean, it's, it's pretty scary. And if I, I don't know, man, I think about Mark Zuckerberg and watching his, his testimony, I was like, Ooh, this is freaking me out. Complete. No, he's an alien. No, he did not take any ownership of anything that happened. So of course, just wondering from this earth. I know. It's very interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. And in the, the podcast with Rich and Cal, it wasn't about complete removal of ourselves from social media. Mm. It was just agency and not being victims to it and being aware of it and being 
more thoughtful about it and noticing it. And it's a hard thing. You know, I think about myself with it and I don't know if I'm, people would assume I have a healthy relationship. And in some ways I do because I don't really post a lot on my Instagram, but that's all, everything's relative. I don't really post stories on my Instagram, but everything's relative. I don't do certain things that maybe are more public on Facebook, Twitter, whatever, but I am checking my email all the time. I am in Slack all the time. And my time on my phone is, it's actually, I should look at my screen time. I'm scared. Yeah, what's yours? I was listening to Chris D'Elia the other day as an aside, and he was saying how being on his phone so much and being on like Instagram so much makes him really depressed. And it's funny because like, that's literally all he does. Yo. Besides, he'll do stand up, he'll do his podcast, and he's on social media all the time. So it was really interesting because I feel that he's like my brain like feels like there's a like a hole in it, like it's a yeah. depressed hole, and I feel that way sometimes if I'm on my phone too much. Wow. Yeah, I was because because I was, and I noticed that too because I was exhausted today. I had an extra fifteen minutes before I had to leave for my dermatologist appointment, and. I was like, oh, I'm going to just look at social media. And I did. And I actually was, I got sad. I just looked at a few different things. I was like, oh, what's this person doing? What's this person doing? And literally didn't feel good after. Mm -hmm. Watched like a few people's stories. I don't feel good watching people's stories. I do in a lot of ways, you know, I love to to see what everyone's doing and, and it makes me happy that they're happy and that they're sharing. But it's like, I just feel so much shame around being on it that it's like more so I know that I need to be doing something to focus on myself or to better mm-hmm. myself or have stuff to do or have things that I need to be doing. And it's like, why am I here? Yeah. My screen time's three hours and 30 minutes. Mine's 147. Is that just today? That's today. No way. Fuck. <laughs> it's not just this week. I think, I don't know. 84 fucking pickups. <laughs> Where are my big, how do you wow. pickups? What's your, what's your average in the last pickups. seven days? I mean, this is just crazy. This is, everyone needs, yeah, everyone time. needs to go to settings and then screen time if you have an iPhone. And what would my goal be? I'm trying to think. Screen time? Yeah. My average is five hours a day. Holy moly. Let me, I don't. I think my goal would be three hours a day. Yeah. Cause we have to think about work five hours a day. Damn. Nah. Yeah. I think my goal would be, yeah, three to four, three to four hours a day to cut that down. So if you guys want to listen to the ritual episode with Cal, it's super interesting. And he actually has a really, really good book that I just picked out or I just actually purchased. And that book is called Deep Work Rules for Focused Success in a Distracted World. So it's really helpful to understand how to apply your attention to certain things. And I think a lot of times people always talk about ADD and and it's basically that and I, I know that there is the disorder completely, but there is also in the sense when it's used lackadaisically to describe people that can't pay attention is that our brains are now being trained to not be able to pay attention. So I think that there is also that too. So I'm going to pick that up because I would love to, I guess with having agency with my phone or having a guardrails, I will feel better and I will feel less shame being on it all the time. And I think that's the goal for me. And I think- to just being for me more in control. Cause I think like living alone, there's something there where yeah. I'm just, I try not to be on my phone too much. I, you know, I'll 
do other things, but I will find a way. And then all of a sudden I'm in there and I'm like, ah, why am I here? So I, I do do better when I'm, when I'm with people and you're the same way. When I'm with people, I am not on my phone whatsoever. I forget to take pictures, video of something that we probably same. should capture. I am not on my phone. So I think like, you know, being around people more often definitely helps me do that. Yeah. Cause oftentimes, you know, I, I guess as a last thing, when I'm with people and what do I want? Like people to see that I'm with them, you know, I would love, and there's a beautiful part where it's like, I would love to share my community with people, the people that I hang out with, the people that inspire me, the people that I love. But sometimes the social media, I don't really understand. I'm like, what, what would someone else get from this? Mm-hmm. I completely agree. Not yeah. that I'm saying that I don't do it. I'm literally just thinking out loud. I completely agree. Say no more. And I, I have a friend who's exactly like that. Instagram's and it's really not going to sponsor. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine? Honestly. Oh, what would the CPM be for that one? Hmm. That'd be such a weird a sponsor. <laughs> It'd be like, hey guys, have you heard of this social networking app? <laughs> hey guys, we're so excited to tell you yeah. about. <laughs> Get to your phone, go to the app store and download Instagram. <laughs> oh, zero ROI. Oh man. Yeah, that's a good one to think about. Yeah. Maybe we do constant companion, dude. Think about that. Because it is comforting at times. Yes. It is really comforting. And it's like a relationship. I, who was I talking to? One of our friend's younger sisters was saying how she goes to bed super, super late. And I was like, oh, why? You know, there, I I didn't see the obvious reason. She's like, well, I'm on my phone in my bed until like 1 a.m. No. And I was like, oh no, 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 no. So I told her, because I've been there, I've definitely been there, but I told her that, and this is a, silly hack that is not new and people know, but put your phone outside of your room charging and just put your alarm loud enough if that's where your alarm is so that you get up in the morning to turn it off. It's made such a difference. Now I'm allergic to having my phone in my room at all at any point in the day, which is nice. Keeping your bedroom as like a sacred space, you will sleep better. And I just feel like there will be less of that uh, emotional dependency. I mean, being with something before bed is so vulnerable. <laughs> it's so vulnerable. Like might as well have sex with your phone. I know your brain is, your brain is so sensitive. Yeah. I also put it on airplane mode after 8 PM and I try to keep it on airplane mode until 8 AM. Mm-hmm. Depends on if my workout, depends on what time my workouts are, but I do airplane mode a lot. I really like airplane mode. Yep. I have no notifications on. I just realized I have Slack notifications on and I probably should turn those off. Mm-hmm. You don't need any, I don't need any notifications, but you know, it could cause you to check more and also removing email inboxes from your phone that you don't need. I took a few off that of the emails with our company that I don't necessarily need because it clogs your inbox. Totally. So those are some things I've done. And also I have night shift on, on my phone. Yes. So you can go to your iPhone settings and turn on night shift. I had that before, but I forgot about it until I saw Lacey the other day. Yeah. I love, I love the airplane mode. just for a very solid block of time. Because I think a lot of us get up and we get right on our phones to attach ourselves to the responsibilities. Like that's where we kind of put our worth a lot of the times if we're, you know, so involved Mm -hmm. in our work. But every single time it stresses me the fuck out. I know. If I don't have my morning to my myself. So good one. What do you guys think? Let us know. Join the secret Facebook group. And we can join to the secret Facebook group on your phone and we can, we can talk about this. I would love to have a conversation about any tips or tricks that you guys do for um, managing the relationship you have with your phone. 
and just kind of have a conversation. Awesome. All right. Today, I'm really, really excited. Jane Werwind is on the podcast. Oh, this was a, such a good one. She's, uh, she's inspiration in so many ways. I can't even count. She's, she's so grounded. She's, uh, Jane is amazing. She is the founder of Dermalogica, which is one of the biggest brands in the world. In the world. Uh, she started it with her husband and she started it with as an esthetician. And when she came to the United States, she realized from the UK, she realized that we didn't have the same standards for teaching and for learning um, the right practices in that space. So she created a learning and teaching program. And with when doing that, she realized that there was a hole in the market for quality uh, products for estheticians to use. So she created those products that herself as an esthetician wishes she had and wishes that she could use and then used it within her teaching program and really just grew the company from the ground up. Yeah. It was so interesting how the company formed in tandem with, with the educational piece, yes. which I think is so genius. And it was cool. She opened up her first classroom in Marina Del Rey. I was I like, are we walking in history here? I know. It was so, so, so cool. So that's the International Dermal Institute, IDI. And, you know, licensed skin therapists are graduating still from there all the time. And it is just highly, highly regarded. What I love about Dermalogica, just as an aside, there's there's no like fragrances. It's all tested thoroughly. The products are so effective and they are really, really, really focused on making sure that their products do not irritate the skin, no artificial colors, no mineral oils or anything like that. And really focused on creating quality skincare for you. So everyone's skin is super, super different. So making sure that the products are enhancing your skin to be the best that your skin can be. And she is just such a boss. I love talking with her because the way she expresses herself and the way she asserts what she believes in, just, I don't question it. It, yes. Even if I disagree with it, I am so like inspired by the way she stands and what she believes and what she has built. And yeah, this is man, inspirational oh for any female entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs in general. There's such a beauty to her story and there are so many nuggets that I took. And what I also love about her is that she is so focused in philanthropy. She's been doing it from the beginning. You know, there's multiple organizations that she's been working with, but now she's really focused on Found LA, which is part of the Werwin Foundation. They help local entrepreneurs build their businesses, find purpose and build community. So she's focusing on helping underprivileged and under-resourced entrepreneurs in your local community so that they can create thriving, booming businesses. So awesome. Yeah, she's awesome. Love her so much. So we hope you enjoyed this episode. You can, if you're interested in Dermalogica products, you can go to Dermalogica.com and use our code ALMOST30. And Get 20% off. Yes. If you love this episode, share with your friends and join our secret Facebook group. We'll have a larger conversation about all the things. It's a supportive, loving, fun, funny amazing community. So can't yeah. wait for you to join. Yeah. And we'll see you on tour. We have a bunch of different dates, Columbus, Philly, Washington, DC, New York, Chicago, Columbus, Ohio, Miami happening in December. So Australia, there's a bunch of different dates. So if you check almost30podcast.com slash tour, we would love to see you. You come with a friend, come alone. It's going to be awesome. Yeah. We can't wait. All right. We'll see you on the other side of this episode. Enjoy. 
I know. Do you see your daughters really interacting with social media? Like what's their relationship with it? My eldest, no, not at all. Yeah. She's not on anything. Too cool. My little one, yes. She's actually the head of social media for her sorority. Oh, what is, oh, I wonder what what's that sorority? entails. <laughs> I know. Uh, Dude, honestly. Gamma Phi. Actually, oh. you know what's funny is I was in Delta Gamma and I was head of archives. So that's actually like ages me. Yeah, because you would now be head of social media. Yeah. yeah. Wait, what's archives? Yo. History and History photographs and, like, and photographs <laughs> and like our like- Yearbook? Founders. Yeah, dude, that's so crazy. <laughs> Everyone was like- uh, Everyone like felt bad. They're like, so she'll be vice president. She'll be president. She'll be activities. Uh, archives? <laughs> <laughs> they're like, uh, here you go. Archives? Uh, best dressed and archives? <laughs> yeah, literally. I was like, okay. <laughs> yeah. um, but I want to keep on our conversation about- uh, the female entrepreneur, uh, female entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. And I know before we got on, we were talking about uh, a situation where you were speaking mm-hmm. and you were speaking to a group of men. And I mm-hmm. want to kind of pick up where we left off and sharing some of the information that you shared with them. Because I think a lot of women um, are seeing this rise in social media on the spotlight on female entrepreneurs, on females getting funding. But I think the reality isn't really matching what we're seeing. Mm-hmm. That's true. Well, the reality is that women get less than 3% of all venture capital funding, about 2.8%. And that's down from five years ago when it was a little over 3%. So it's not going in the right direction. And I've spoken at finance conferences about this and, uh, and usually, you know, majority men in the audience. And I think that funding model, if we're waiting for the VCs to fund us, and by the way, if you're a woman of color, it's even worse. I think we're hovering under 1% of funding. And yet every study shows that when a woman starts a business, runs a business, they will do exponentially at least as well and often better than a male counterpart. And I, I don't want to break it down gender lines that specifically, but the funding piece does break down on gender lines. So we have to fix that model. You know, I, so what I was sharing before we, we started was I sat at a lunch with three men in finance who I know, I mean, they're friends and we're chatting about other things. And then I, they asked, well, you know, what are you looking at? What are you working on? What are you thinking about? And I said, well, talking about the fact that, you know, women get less than 3% of funding and quite condescendingly, the one who is a friend of mine said, uh, yeah, that's not Jane. Come on, that's not right. And I said, that's the stat. That's the number. You must know that. You're in, you're in funding. And the second one said to me, well, I mean, where did you get that number? Looking at me like, you know, you know, did you get that from Hillary Clinton's blog? He's or like, something? I don't see gender. So <laughs> yeah, I must not exactly. know. Exactly. <laughs> so I must not know. And I said, um, Fortune, Forbes, um, I'll send you the links. The US Department of Labor. So they, that afternoon. I sent them the links and they all, each of them came back to me and said, oh, oh my goodness, this is crazy. I had no, we had no idea. And I said, well, how is that possible? Mm. And so I can't even explain the whole story other than it made me think, okay, well, so this is just not even being, never mind. It's not, it's a problem that's not being addressed. It's sort of not being seen. So we have to talk about it and point to it. And I never believe that we should be, you know, waiting for Prince Charming to come along like Sleeping Beauty. You know, we've got to say, well, if that model's not working, we've got to think of a model that will. We have to be involved with funding. We have to work with women who are starting funds. And that's happening. It's definitely happening. But we have to accelerate that as much as we can. And also invest more personally because... 
when you look at just general society, men invest more. They make more investments than women do. Women invest, we invest in our families and our communities and in our, in our immediate you know, people that we know and love, we're not investing as much as men do in in the stock market and in venture uh, capital and also in entrepreneurs. And so that's an area that I think we've got to redefine for women. And I think we fund differently and we look at it differently. And and I think that's that's a whole piece that's ready for a disruption. But I do think it's happening. There's a lot of stories being written about female founders and female founders starting funds and being involved with funds. And I think we've just got to point to it and applaud it. In your experience, um, you know, talking to female entrepreneurs and helping them, you know, what about women mm-hmm. make them so successful when they do get funding? Because I, I do want to give women confidence out there because I think sometimes we're overshadowed by the men who, and I love, I love, we love men. It's just like more of a kind of an ego trip when you get funding. And I'm, I'm just curious as to like why women work together and in community and create these successful businesses and why men are a bit afraid of that or maybe shying away from investing in it. I don't think it's, uh, I don't think it's that, you know, men or women, I don't think it breaks around, you know, who's doing it better, who's better. It's not a competition, mm-hmm. right? It's just that we're different, clearly on in many ways, as we should be. That's fine. But if I look at, for example, in the workplace, and I've had the opportunity to work in companies, also own a company, run a company that had men and women working in it, I think men ladder climb. I think corporate structure has been set up like ladders. Well, rightly so, because, you know, corporate structures were set up 150 years ago and the women were not in the workplace. So you set up a structure according to your strengths and weaknesses of the group, the team. So this ladder climbing is, there's a vertical ladder, I'm on this rung, I need to get to the next rung, and the top of the rung is CEO, let's say. And if I get on the next rung and you're on it, you have to get off it for me to get on. So it's this, it's very competitive and it's who's getting to the next rung. And that works. It has worked for our companies to a degree. Women, I believe we weave webs which are more horizontal than vertical. So I'm looking at who am I connecting with? Who am I bringing in? Who am I collaborating with? That's building my web. That's building my strength. So rather like a trampoline, the tighter my web weave the higher the bounce. Mm. And then we bounce from that web up. We bounce from that trampoline up. So it's a different structure. And I think both are effective. I think both work, but they work differently. One works in a more solitary, title-driven hierarchy, the ladders, and one works in a more collaborative, team-building um, democracy, which is the the trampolines. And I think that having said that, the climate of today's society, the climate of the mood, the climate of where we're at, it's just more receptive to the team building collaboration model. And we're hungry for that because that talks a lot about not to, I mean, it's an overused word, empathy, but it does talk a lot about empathy and kindness and having your back and watching and seeing and knowing each other and building relationships with each other that are beyond just the relationship I have with you because you're my subordinate or you're my supervisor. It's not a ladder, it's a, it's a trampoline. And I think it's just different. But I think we're moving to the trampoline model because it's, it's not just, I think, as successful. It's, it's also a hell of a lot more fun. Is that a Jane original? I mean. The trampoline? 
analogy? Is that an original? That's yeah, I think so. TED Talk. Wow. TED Talk just happened. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you guys just witnessed a TED Talk happen. I also think too, when I think about women that I know that are very successful, you know, in business or um, making a lot of money, it's almost like the women I know aren't, I don't know, like the goal isn't to be making so much money that we could not, we, I guess I am speaking for myself that I will be making a lot of money at one point, but I've never thought about making so much where I could invest hundreds of thousands into others. And it's not because I'm not down to support women or that's Mm -hmm. not what I stand for, but Mm -hmm. it's almost like men go at it with such a millions idea and mindset of making millions and millions and millions and millions, and then investing to make more millions. And there's more of the focus on that. And like, I feel like a lot of the women that I know and that I interact with, it's almost like covering your own basis of having a nice home, having a great life that you love, supporting your family, supporting your friends. And I think this is what we talked about before, but never going past the level of thinking beyond their sphere to support tons of other women with their dreams and their jobs. So I think that's something that's also new too, where we could have the mindset of supporting others with finances by making enough to support others, where men are kind of like make enough money to double that money mm-hmm. by investing or, you know, like supporting an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. I think that's true. And if we think about it, women being financially independent is a relatively new concept. So we haven't had that history of uh, deep investment by women and women owning their own money, accessing their own money and being able to spend it as they wish. It's a relatively new idea for most, you know, most, most cultures. So I think that we haven't seen it to be it, if you know what I mean. So yeah. all the models have been set up and we haven't seen that played out. We haven't seen that happening. So, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, we're, we're taking care of ourselves and our food and our family and our shelter and our home, etc. And in a traditional, uh, what would have been called a more traditional relationship or marriage, uh, the woman would have not worked and the man would have worked to earn the money and then given her housekeeping. I'm going back to a very obviously stereotyped uh, Western model, but that was the fact. And so now that we've got this generation, multi-generations of, you know, within the last 50 years of women owning their own businesses, not just earning money, but owning their own businesses, growing them to be successful, and then having this much higher level of, of income to be able to fund or invest, that's relatively new. And I think that's why we we just haven't seen it. So we're sort of saying, okay, now how does how's this going to work? We have a rare opportunity though to reinvent what that funding model could look like. Mm-hmm. And I think that we should seize it. Yeah. Because when Silicon Valley was happening in tech, for example, that was a brand new industry that no one knew about. It happened in California, which is a very progressive state. It was extremely experimental and creative and entrepreneurial. And yet, if we look at Silicon Valley, women didn't get into that club. They got shut out. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Well, yes. We've got a bad rep. (laughs) And it wasn't that women weren't there. They just weren't in, they didn't get to that level for all kinds of reasons, which would be a whole different podcast with someone else. But but at the end of the day, you're looking at a situation where many will refer to it like a, you know, a frat club. So that you would have thought there was an opportunity to reinvent there with a brand new industry in a state that's highly liberal and progressive in a country that is, you know, is championing entrepreneurship. And yet it didn't happen. So I think we have to make mm. sure that as we go forward and now we're going to be in charge of our own income, our own companies, our own discretionary spending and funding, we have to make sure that we don't fall into the trap of going back to an old model, we may have a chance to reinvent it. 
I'm curious like what the conversations are like with, you know, if you are investing or say you might be advising someone who's receiving investment, a woman, like what are those, what's important to you in those conversations? Well, I mean, I'm my main uh, focus isn't funding. So it's not like I'm sitting on a funding, right. you know, uh, panel and I'm deciding. But what I'm looking at in any entrepreneur, uh, if I'm interested in in becoming involved with them in on any level, whether I'm mentoring them, whether I'm going to support them, whether, you know, we're going to recommend any kind of investment, I'm looking at the entrepreneur themselves. You know, the, I've never seen a business plan that didn't look good. Business plan's always going to say that the business is su- going to be successful. <laughs> and ultimately, yes, you're looking at the business plan, but it, who's the person that's going to be implementing it? Who's the, what are the team that are going to be making this happen? And in entrepreneurial investing, you're looking at the potential performance of the person in front of you. So it's what is the idea? Do for me, do I understand the idea? Is the idea something that is, you know, that seems to have a niche and there's not necessarily a proven track record because very many new ideas don't have a proven track record, but where's the opportunity? Where's the gap? What is the industry they're looking at addressing? And what's the pain in that industry? And have they spotted it? Have they spotted the really sharp edge of that pain? And do they have a solution for it? So that's what I look for in an entrepreneur. And then is the entrepreneur all in? And do they have skin in the game? And so, you know, what are they putting into it? Because even though they might be asking for, you know, tens of hundreds, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands or even millions of dollars in some levels, what are they putting into it? Because if they're not putting as much, not as much in numbers, but as much in risk, you know, they've put themselves on the line. They've, you know, taken a second mortgage. They're sleeping on a friend's couch. I mean, I've heard those stories. Are they all in or are they sitting back safe, far from the cliff edge, wanting someone else to take the risk? So those are the things I look at, but uh, I mean, everyone is different. Mm. We had a conversation with um, the founders of The Skim Mm -hmm. and they were talking about that too. Like having a lot of skin in the game, taking the risk, being a part of that conversation and going all in because, you know, we've heard different sides if you should mitigate your risks by, you know, not going all in and I think that's really interesting that you also said that. So for you and your journey, like growing this brand, growing Dermalogica to be like huge, what was it about you? Like, did you have your confidence that you have now through the whole journey and the clear vision that you have now? Or is it now that you've grown it to be this position and to be this huge brand that you can see clearly? Well, I... I think it is different when you've done it because you can look back at the track record and talk about it. But when we launched Dermalogica, I was 24 years old and, and, you know, an immigrant came from the UK and we started our company when I'd been here less than a year. So clearly didn't have very much of a clue of anything. And yet my belief in it was as strong then as it is now. But of course, I couldn't prove that there was going to be a a now. I I didn't know this then, but I absolutely knew that what we were driving to was the hard cutting edge of what people wanted. I just felt it. I really believed it. I I felt feral about it. Mm. And the reason is because... I knew the industry that we were going to be addressing, which is the professional salon industry. I've spent my whole life in it, literally from 13 years old, working every Saturday in a local hair salon. I know this industry. If you ask me something, what's happening in tech, I haven't got a clue. If you ask me, you know, what's how well do I think, you know, Tesla's going to do, I don't know. I'm not very interested in cars. I don't look at it. But I do know the salon industry. So I knew that when I emigrated here and saw there was a lack of training and a lack of education for skin therapists, 
And only seven out of the 50 states even had a license to be able to give skin treatments. And I'd come from Europe where this was a huge industry. And I looked at other countries around the world, like Australia, like Japan, like Germany, like South Africa, for example, where this was a huge industry. I thought, this is crazy. This, This industry should be here in America. And then when I had the second aha moment, and it wasn't just me, it was my boyfriend, who's now my husband and became my business partner, Raymond, who's who's a feral marketer, and me, who's a feral skin therapist, we looked at it and said, oh my goodness, the gap is education. And then pretty quickly when we were educating and trying to upskill skin therapists to be able to be successful because they had better skills and better business skills, we quickly realized from them there was no product. There was no American product in the salon industry for skin, which was crazy. They were bringing in product from Europe and paying import taxes and duties and everything and not getting proper training. So we saw immediately the hard edge there was we needed to develop a product. So it came about because if you know an industry, you're going to spot the pain in it. And if you spot the pain, you just spotted the greatest opportunity. And you have to make sure that what you're looking at is the real pain point and not just jump at the first thing. So you do a little research and you kind of say, so for example, I was going on job interviews to work in a salon and all this, first of all, the first thing, the big red flag, first of all, was there were only salons that I could find were in Beverly Hills. Okay. So that made me think it was elitist. So where was everyone else getting a skin treatment or getting their legs waxed or get, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. So then I went on job interviews and the next thing I heard was that they're not employing Americans because the training's so poor. So it was a second red flag. Why is the training poor? Is the training poor? How poor is it? And I found out it was 600 hours, which is about four months. And that didn't equate to the two years with an apprenticeship that was typical in Europe. So I knew, okay, so skin therapists are getting poorly trained and therefore they're not they don't have a skill set to be successful. And that's why they're not getting the jobs. And that's why there's only seven states that have this. And that's why it's in Beverly Hills, because they're hiring Europeans to work in their salons. So the gap was clearly education. I went and did the license myself, the California state license. I had to by law to be able to be working here. And the skincare portion of the license test was 15 minutes done in an upright chair. So I knew, okay, there's a lot to upskill here and there's a big opportunity because the skin therapists who have already got the license and they don't have the skills to be successful. So I can change that. I had a teaching credential. We can fix it. And that's what we did. We started an education company, the International Dermal Institute, and had full enrollment pretty much from day one with waiting lists. And when the students were coming to class, they were all working in the industry. They just didn't hadn't really been taught how to do the work correctly and make money from it. So then when they were coming and they were coming back to classes and saying, oh my goodness, that technique you taught me, you know, I can now do extractions around the nose. I can extract a blackhead from someone's ear. They were very excited. So they could do a bikini wax in seven minutes, which had been taking them sort of 40 and, you know, they were in a cold sweat. (laughs) So when that started happening, then they were saying, what about a product? And that Again, I had a lot of ideas about that. So Raymond and I set about developing Dermalogica. So we launched, we started our education program in 1983 and we launched Dermalogica in 1986. And we started on self-funding, $14,000 on self-funding. We never took outside funding or gave away any equity until we went to acquisition. And that wasn't anything brilliant on our part. We were new immigrants. I went to beauty school. I don't have a college degree. Who's going to fund me? No, never mind, less than 3% going to 
to women with great college degrees and and experience and a background, no one would have funded me. So we self-funded. And the typical entrepreneur self-funds on three credit cards, $25,000. That's the typical entrepreneur. I call them invisible entrepreneurs. These are the entrepreneurs that we walk past every day. The florist, the salon, the the cat mechanic, the dog groomer, the bakery, the coffee shop, the restaurant, the taco stand. These are entrepreneurs that we walk past in our neighborhood every day and we don't see them. They're invisible. We think of Elon Musk. We think of Steve Jobs. We think of Sarah Blakely. We think of people that we know, but actually the big long tail of entrepreneurship are those small entrepreneurs that will hire one or two other people, but will hire locally and are the glue of our communities. And so for us, the salon industry was always about that. That's what built Dermalogica. We didn't take any advertising, any consumer advertising, because the word of mouth in the salons was huge because they were our influencers. Each skin therapist had five or 600 clients. And to those clients, they were the guru of everything skin. And so they weren't working for Dermalogica. They were endorsing Dermalogica because they used it and it got them results in the room. So it was the height of influencer marketing before it was even called that. It was just total word of mouth. And now Dermalogica is in 106 countries and the number one professional skincare brand in the world. And that's how we built it. We built it through education, entrepreneurship, and building community. So it's not any different than you would build a business now, but the plumbing's different, you know, because now, of course, we have the internet and social media and we're very active on that now, but that wasn't how we built it. Wow. I'm curious, like in those early years, what were things that stick out to you as what you didn't know that you were like, oh God, like I know nothing about that. You just seem, you are so confident and Mm. you just dive head first. So I'm just wondering specifically like, what didn't you know and and what was like the biggest learning during that time? Mm, didn't know that 911 was the emergency number in America. That was... <laughs> was like, How'd you find out? Well, <laughs> someone told us, I said, we should dial 999. And they said, what's that? And I said, emergency services. And they said, no, it's not. It's 911. I said, oh, God, thank God I didn't The office that. is burning down. You're yeah, like, exactly. Okay. Thank God <laughs> I didn't need that before now. Um, we didn't know anyone. We didn't know anyone when we came to the States. We didn't know how to negotiate a lease. We didn't know how to work a computer because they'd just been, you know, laptops weren't here, but desktops were. And we had an an IBM PC, which, you know, you had to learn how to put the DOS disk in to get it to read, you know, the language. It was crazy. We didn't know any of that, but we always knew we could figure it out. Mm. We're smart, We've got 24 hours a day. If we don't know what the hell we're doing, we've got a whole, you know, hours and hours every day because we don't have a business yet to figure it out. And we figured between us, we could figure it out. And so we turned each other on with self-repeated enthusiasm. And we lived in a one-bedroom flat in Marina Del Rey. And we just kept eating, sleeping, drinking, dreaming this vision. And we saw it completely finished. We, we saw it. We wrote down, I literally wrote down total world domination of professional skincare. That was the goal. 
Wow. And it sounds a bit aggressive to say domination, but what we meant was the industry needed a complete disruption. It needed to be completely changed from education to the products, to the language. We weren't going to say the word beauty. We weren't going to say esthetician. We're going to come forward with a completely different approach that's going to be much more fresh and modern. And we so believed in it that we just wouldn't we just wouldn't not think about it. We, we wouldn't be refused. So many people, as we would talk to people, tried to discourage us that we made an agreement between ourselves that we weren't going to tell anybody what we were doing because they told us we didn't know what we were doing. We were crazy. And so we, we told people for a while that we were opening tea shops. And people thought that was a good idea because I was English. So I was going to say, like, perfect. Tea. Yeah, Great but we were. I mean, we were not doing that. We were not. We were busy. The dumb Americans are like, sounds good. <laughs> sounds good to me. And what's the worst that can happen? We, you know, I can always work. I can always get a job in a salon, so it's going to be fine. You know, when you've mm. got a skill set, when you've got a vocational training, it's, in, it's so powerful because it doesn't really matter what happens. I can get a job next Tuesday. I literally, I know this sounds crazy, but I will walk down a street that I don't know, in a city I don't know. And I, I always sort of subconsciously, though actually I know what I'm doing, I'm looking for a salon or two or four, which I always find because I think, you know what, if the worst came to the worst, I'd get a job. I can work. I can put food on the table. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> I love maybe you that. Can. So I think move that, to a little town in yeah, Sicily. And I just can do work. it. I, I can wax that. a bikini line. I can get it going. So <laughs> that gave me the confidence. You know, there was no plan B. But if I had to make a plan B, I had a skill set, and that's why. You know, at Domological, we've always been focused on upskilling and providing skill sets. And and that idea of having a skill set in your hands is like, you know, having a superhuman power. That makes you a superhero. Yeah, we've heard a lot about too, like not sharing your idea with people because you might get deterred based on their feedback or, you know, whatever their thoughts are and their insights. And we see that too happen. Even this is on a smaller scale with podcasts. We will be like, oh, I'm starting a podcast or, and they'll announce it. They'll share it. They'll have the branding and everything like that, but the product isn't there. Mm -hmm. And there's just such a disservice that you're doing to the natural process and evolution of creating something. If you are announcing it too soon or like looking for the end result of the gratification of it Mm -hmm. before it's actually been created. hundred percent. You've got to look for the creation you I wasn't we weren't thinking about the money exactly. we weren't we were just total about, world domination <laughs> yeah we were thinking about the purpose we were thinking about our why our bigger why we weren't you know we didn't we developed the products we were developing ideas for the products before we really developed of course the names but I sit down with people sometimes and they'll say okay I've got a great name for my company and I'm like okay well that could that should actually be the last oh thing. my gosh Dude, same. Yeah. Or it's like, I've got the logo and I'm like, okay, but where's the yeah. thing? Like, yeah. I always see the branding and the logo come I first. Do too. Well, also, women are so, like, men are visual in a different way, but women are so creatively visual. Mm-hmm. So it helps them, like, taste it a little bit more. But Which it is fine. But don't announce it and don't talk yeah. about it until you know you've got it right. Yep. I, I'm busy reading Phil Knight's book. Oh my um, gosh. Yeah. And, you know, he talks oh, about yeah. the fact that he didn't have the name Nike until Shoot literally, off? Shoot second, off, yeah. 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 Uh, mm-hmm. Until literally minutes before. Yeah. They had to sort of have it finalized. And, and, and I think that 
that's fine. You know, you have your concept, you have your purpose, you get your sense of feralness. And then afterwards, the name will come and and the packaging will come because it will all come from that sense of purpose. What are we driving to? What's our bigger vision? And I think that's the important thing. It's very easy to sit down and get the idea. There's no shortage of good ideas. There's shortage of great execution. Yeah. It's always like, I always say too, it's like, you should be putting things together as the car is moving. Yes. You know, like your car should be moving and then you're like, okay, we have to adjust and now we have to do this. Okay. So now we're going to do this instead of like getting it all together, have everything perfect and then launch. There is something to that, but like you need to see what the market is like. You need to see what the response is like. There's Mm -hmm. such a, a miss with like getting everything packaged at first. Like you should be embarrassed by the first thing, you know, our logo, our first episodes were embarrassing, but we put it out there. We put it out yeah. there. You have to let it live a little bit. Yeah, and it's breathe. okay. And and you 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 move into it. You find yeah. your your groove in it too. I mean, I think that you know it's like having a baby. When you have a baby, it's messy, embarrassing. It's super messy and embarrassing. <laughs> I mean, honestly. And yet, you know, they. If I think if I mean, if your baby's handy to you, you know, covered in poo and sort of you know <laughs> sticky stuff. I don't want to. What is it? You can't see it's a baby. Yeah. But they take it away. <laughs> clean it up, put a bonnet on it, wrap it up in a blanket, hand it back to you and go, oh my God, it's my child. I love it. (laughs) So, you know, a new idea, you're birthing a new idea. It's going to be messy. But so clean it up, you know, make it, but don't worry. There is a baby in there. Don't think, oh, this is, this is rubbish. I'm throwing it out. You know, there's a, you've got your baby. So clean it up, but don't think it's finished the minute it's born and in a way that it's presentable. Mm -hmm. So I think that I think of that when I think of new ideas, they're messy and you get there and that's part of the process. And if you're a natural entrepreneur, you, that's the process you like. You like the messiness. You mm-hmm. like cleaning up. You like having those ideas. And if you, you know, I say uh, the entrepreneur has, there's a decisiveness about being an entrepreneur. If you've got 70% of the information, you have more than enough to make a decision. If you keep waiting to get 100% of the information, more data, more studies, more examples, more things, you, you're not a natural entrepreneur. Because a natural entrepreneur, once you've got 70%, you've got more than enough to make a decision. Now jump in and make the decision and live with it. And then as you're running, as you're walking, as you're doing, you're, you're putting the, the wheels on and getting everything going. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How much does your intuition play into these bigger decisions? Huge. I'd love to, yeah. Just Huge. as women, I feel like we, we feel yeah, it. It's power. like you cannot ignore it, no. but then you have kind of voices saying, well, did you think about this and yeah. this? So it's, I'm just curious as to like your relationship with it. I've always uh, trusted my feeling, my intuition, whether it's about a person or an idea. And it doesn't mean you're always right. Well, when data isn't always right, if data was right, we'd have, you know, Hillary Clinton as our president, right? So mm-hmm. it doesn't mean that the data is always right either. So at some point you have to say, I know what's going on. I sense what's going on. I think that's the hallmark of an entrepreneur. And I don't know that it is particularly gender specific, but what I do think is that women tend to trust it more. And I think that men have equally strong intuition, but they don't trust it to go with it, to make a decision with it. They'll say it's anecdotal. I don't think there's anything anecdotal about having, you know, experience. I I sat a couple of years ago with somebody from a large corporation, large company, and I was we were talking about an in my industry, the salon industry, and I was talking about what I thought was happening. And they said, well, the data doesn't back that up. And I said, I don't really care. And they said, well, 
but what you're saying is anecdotal. And I said, no, I'm basing it on 40 years of experience in an industry that I know better than anyone else at this table. So that's what I'm basing it on. It's nothing to do with intuition. It's nothing to do with, oh, I just sucked that idea up my thumb. That's what's happening. And if we wait longer, the data will prove it out yeah. and you'll see it. And they did wait longer and the data has proven it out. So yes. I'm not saying that I know everything because I know very little about most things, but there are some things that we each know really well. And if you sense it, if you have this sense of something's happening, something sticky, something in the air, you know what's going on in the space that you love the most. You just know. Yeah, yours is the real-time analysis and the data is obviously delayed. You know, it's yeah. always delayed on that front. Yeah. And your relationship with, you know, your husband, Raymond, like mm-hmm. that is so important to this too, because it's like you guys have each other to like play off of yeah. and like support and kind of go through the entire process. As you guys have built, you know, this this thing, mm-hmm. has it just made you so much closer? And like, like what has that evolution of the business and your relationship been like? Mm. Well, I've only ever been in business with one person and that's Raymond. So I can't say what it's like with a business partner, but I'm imagining it's probably much like a marriage, much like a relationship. You have ups and downs. You have things that you agree on immediately, things that you don't agree on immediately and come to a compromise and things that you'll never agree on perhaps. The one thing is, it's about this idea of trust and partnership in both business and in in life, I think. I have to know that that person's always got my back. Raymond and I know, without one shadow of a doubt, we've each got each other's backs. It doesn't mean that we won't be ferocious with each other when we're arguing a point, because we are. We are brutally honest and ferocious with each other. And at the same time, we want the absolute best for the other one. So therefore, we've always got their back. But um, I mean, some of my best advice has come from Raymond. And I think he would say, you know, some of his best advice has come from me. I know that we could not have built our company without the other one. And if I had to start a business again, I wouldn't do it with anyone else. We're very different personalities. However, we align on a value system. And I think when you're looking for a partner, that's what you're really looking for. Do you have an aligned value system? Do you believe that the same things are important? We believe very strongly, for example, that anyone who came to work for us, we had a social responsibility to them. So it wasn't about you know, bring them in and throw them out. It wasn't about, you know, giving someone a pink slip if if it didn't work out. You had to handle that as a relationship because you owe that person a social justice because they've joined your dream. They've joined your company. They've given hours, years, sometimes decades to your company. You can't cast off people like a piece of clothing. You've got to sit down and have conversations. If someone hands in their notice and it's a surprise to you, you don't have a relationship with that person. You should see it coming unless there's some unforeseen circumstance that happened that they have to leave. And similarly, if you have to let someone go, it should never be a surprise to that person because you should have had multiple conversations before that happened. And so that I, that is just one value system that we were totally aligned on. And it just carried through everything when we were doing compensation reviews, when we were doing healthcare decisions for the company, when we were deciding bonuses, when we were looking for the kind of person to come into the company. It had to be a specific kind of, of person and uh, that always served us well. So I think 
an aligned value system is your bedrock for what you're going to build together. And talking about company culture, just because we've been having these conversations internally as well on a smaller scale, obviously, but <laughs> much smaller <laughs> little, scale, a little bit smaller, but, but you know, it, it does like kind of bring up, I'm sure the same, just like, because it, these are relationships, it's mm-hmm. like heartbreaking sometimes, you know, and yes. then, and then there's a side of us that's like, this is business. And then we're like, no, this is like, this is heartbreaking. Yeah. And, and so I'm just curious, like in those conversations, like what has been most helpful to ha- in having those hard conversations? And what do you think makes, you know, you know, you're a CEO, but like you're managing people. Mm-hmm. And so what are like, what you've learned are a mark of a great manager in that way, managing people, human beings? Mm. Well, I think there's a big difference between a manager and a leader. A manager mm. manages processes and people and they're organizational. A leader isn't actually isn't necessarily a good manager, um, but they have a sense of, of, sort of righteous indignation almost. They have a sense of purpose that that leads them, that guides them, that's their North Star. Uh, whatever it is, if you're a leader in, in the military or a leader in business or a leader in a you know education system, you have a North Star that's guiding you. I think that everything you do as a leader and as a leader of people a manager, you can do everything with empathy and kindness. There's nothing you can't do with kindness. There's absolutely no requirement to be unkind, angry, cruel, manipulative, deceptive. And if you are, I worry or wonder if it's just a way of ramping ourselves up to make that conversation happen. So some people have to sort of rev themselves up to get angry, to be able to have the conversation at all. Like, come in, I need to speak to you about something. Well, first thing you should know, I'm not happy or something like that. So I'm, I have had many fierce conversations, but there's no reason that you can't have a conversation that comes from a place of empathy and understanding. And I think that's the mark of a leader. It doesn't mean that you're not strong. It doesn't mean that you don't let people go. It doesn't mean that you don't have to make decisions that you wish you didn't have to, but you make them and you make them in a way that doesn't make the person feel as if they're diminished or less than. You know, there's an expression, a Chinese expression, if you back a person into a corner, you better make sure there's a window for them to climb out of. In other words, don't back someone in a corner where the only response is to bite you in the face or to just shrink down and collapse on the floor. You should, there should always be an exit window. So I think that uh, that's that's important. Company culture, I think it's critically important to have that conversation as the two of you are doing when you are smaller and growing because it's too late once you've brought people on board with your dream that don't fit. And company culture is the thing you must defend the most fiercely but above everything else. Everything else comes second to the culture of your company because that will be your North Star. Raymond and I sat down in our living room uh, very early on. We maybe had 15 people working for us, but already there were sort of people that were saying, well, you know, we can't not use the word beauty because no one understands what we're talking about when we say skin therapy. And so there was this sort of dissent for all the right reasons. And we decided we had to create like a brand Bible. We had to create, what we were doing was creating a company culture. We sat down for two days 
the two of us. And we basically said, what are the things we will not negotiate on? What are the things we won't back down on? And what is the language of Domologica? And we literally developed a language. You know, it's we're, we we talked about this idea of, of it's skin therapy. It's not beauty. It's a skin treatment. It's not a facial. We, we're not going to talk about customer. It's a client. We're not going to talk about consumers as if they're... We're also not going to talk about the professional skin therapist as a channel of distribution. We're going to talk about them as a community. And whoever joins us has to know we have a language and we have a look and we have a color scheme and we have a... So there's all these branding elements, but we also said, okay, when we hire somebody, what are the qualities we're looking for? And we're looking for enthusiasm. And we don't, they don't have to be an extrovert. They can be an introvert. We decided one of the questions we'll ask is, you know, tell us about the favorite vacation you've ever taken. That sort of tells you everything about somebody, uh, whether they're risk aversive or whether they're not. So we, we, it might seem silly, but for us, it worked. We, we put together this sort of culture and we were always going to have the conversation for face to face. We weren't going to, the before, when we started, it was before emails, but we were never going to hide behind a phone message or something. We were going to have the conversation fierce, fiercely face-to-face with each other and with people that work for us. So we, we laid down our company culture. What are the things we care about? What are our North Stars? What are the references that have informed us building this company? Who are the people we admire? What are the strategies that we admire? What's the behavior we admire? Right down to, you know, what the the do's and don'ts. You can make it as detailed as you want. And it isn't finished, but it's a roadmap. It's a map. And that map continues to develop as you drive on your journey. But keep coming back to that North Star, because if you don't have a strongly embedded company culture, and you don't literally what we call visioneer people to it, you you can lose it. And I, I often say do it like Disney, because Disney had a, an incredible culture. You may like it or not like it, but you can't take it away from the fact that when people work for Disney, they know who they're working for and they know what the culture is. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> What's our culture? <laughs> that's okay. You know, you can, that's the first question. Yeah. What's our culture? Yeah. And you can start with what do you like? Where do you like to grocery shop? What do you look? What companies do you admire? What companies do you want to emulate? What do you feel attracted to? Where do you like to live? I mean, you can start with random thoughts because they're all dots on a piece of paper that will join up into a constellation. And you'll realize, oh my goodness, look at this. We're looking at, and then you'll come to it. Like a person and a feeling. Yeah. And a lot of what you talk about with that, with the culture and then the story of Dermalogica is so like, it is just so ahead of its time. Like the focus on education is something that I think people need to think more about. And you guys were doing so early on Mm -hmm. for entrepreneurs and people that are starting businesses or, you know, their thing online. How important is the storytelling aspect of a brand? Well, the storytelling narrative is what makes a brand. So you have a commodity. So let's say, I don't know, let's just take Clorox bleach, right? So it's, a pro- it's a product, right? It's a commodity. We all know it. It's also a trademark. But Kevin Roberts, who was the CEO of Saatchi and Saatchi, he wrote a book some years ago called Love Marks. And what he talks about is this idea of you have commodities, you have trademarks, we know the name Clorox. And then if you form an emotional connection to a product, you form 
a love for the product, that grows it to be a love mark. So if I say Clorox, we all know that's trademark. I trust it. It's a trust mark. So he talks trademark, trust mark, love mark. And if I say Kleenex, I like Kleenex. I think they're really good tissues and I buy Kleenex. Woolite is fantastic for your sweaters and I trust it and I buy it. But do I love Woolite? I don't go around saying, oh my God, that new Woolite bottle, isn't it fantastic? I love it. It's not a love mark for me. It's a trust mark. So how do you build a love mark? That for me is the best brands in the world. So if I say Harley Davidson, it's a love mark. I don't ride a motorbike, but if I say Harley Davidson, I'm, I'm sitting on the back of a bike with a badass riding it up PCH <laughs> with the wind in my hair. I guess I'm not wearing a helmet. I mean, I, you know, my, <laughs> my mind goes off on this story that Harley Davidson has built around their brand, mm-hmm. which speaks to an emotional experience. Even though I've never bought Harley Davidson in my life, I understand that brand and the feeling of it. If I say Apple, people, you know, there's a feeling about Apple and it's huge. If I say Disney, there's a feeling about it. It's huge. And I'm using deliberately huge brands because then we can all conjure them up. But if I say, you know, Bellwood Bakery in in Brentwood, I smell cinnamon buns. And and I know they make some of the best challah in the city and I can go there and find it. That's a local entrepreneur that I've found that is just as emotional. They can be a love mark too. So it doesn't depend on size. It depends on the story. I know the family that started that and I know how the recipes were based on the family recipes. And so the storytelling around a brand is critical. And it, it needs to be authentic. It needs to be true. It needs to be real. And you don't have to embellish it. You don't have to make it up. In fact, you shouldn't. You don't have to add Lego to it. It doesn't require any. It's the real thing that built it. And I think even if people don't know the backstory to Dermalogica, that it's based around entrepreneurs that were, that were trained you know, in a skill set and built their own businesses. I think when people see it, there's a feeling that comes from Dermalogica. People say to me, oh, I, I, I've always trusted it. I didn't know the backstory. And I'm like, well, that's why you trust it though, because of that backstory. And so I think it's, it's changed now that we lead with our stories, which I think is the hallmark of a brand. And you should lead with your story and make it big. That is your compass. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things when I think about female funding and the lack of female funding and the opportunity that there is there, women are very good storytellers and we're very good at finding that emotional connection within a business. So it's such a good opportunity for us when we think about brand storytelling and telling the story of a business for us to really lean on that and rely on mm-hmm. that because that is the emotional connection that makes you come back, that makes you you know, a customer for life. And women are so good at that. Well, and I think too, that there's ways creatively of looking at your marketing. I mean, our head of marketing who's been our head of marketing for years, and he's been with us since he was 20, uh, is an English literature major, not a marketing major. He knows how to tell a story. So I think it's important too to think about who in your team are, are great natural storytellers. Why not hire a couple of English literature majors into the marketing department if you plan on telling stories? Because they can write and they know how to take a, a group of uh, sort of experiences and weave them into a story. I think that's that's important. So it forces us to think laterally and think differently about what might be traditional roles and just think of them in an unusual way. Mm. What unusual marketing has Dermalogica done? 
Well, I think the first decision that we made, which was an economical one, was we weren't going to take advertising. Mm-hmm. Originally, when we started, we thought, oh, I wonder if we should take a page in a magazine like Vogue. And then we found out when we had absolutely no money, it was $95,000 for one page, one issue. And we said, okay, forget that. All right, so what should we, what should we do other than that? Oh my that? God. Yeah. Yeah. What year was that? Uh, 1986. Oh my God. <laughs> I- Right. Wow. So that well, that would have been a complete waste of money for us at that size. And we were only distributed in California, so it didn't even benefit us. I mean, people would read about it in New York and there was no online selling there. It was before the internet. So forget that. That didn't work. We had to use word of mouth. We had to use what would now be called guerrilla marketing. We had to get into trade shows. We had to get on the streets. We had to get out there and get talking. Word of mouth literally meant you had to find somebody and tell them. Well, instead of going one salon to the next, we had classrooms of 50 people in the classroom, each of whom worked in the industry. And we could tell 50 people at one time instead of one. So, you know, you you become creative in how you're going to market either your classes or your or your product by knowing, you know, what you can and cannot do. And ultimately, when we started taking advertising, it was in the trade magazines because we were talking to people in the industry. And we only took black and white advertising because four colour separation was more much more expensive then. The process then was different than digital. But we always, we stayed with, with uh, black and white images for, for decades. And then people thought, oh, so cool, you know, Dermalogica, grey and white, black and white ads, you know, so film noir. Yeah, well, actually it was because we couldn't afford full colour separation, <laughs> but it became a part of the brand, a little like what we were talking about. Mm. You sort of, you're running and putting the wheels on as you go. That became part of our identity. And so I think that those things, you know, you become creative because, you know, if you have a ton of money, you throw a ton of money at it and it's a bit like buckshot. Some of it will hit but a lot of it will miss miss the target. And I think when you're an entrepreneur and you're scrappy and hungry, you better make every dollar count. So you target it really carefully and it's got to hit and you've got to know that what you did was, you know, working. Otherwise, do not do it again. Yeah. yeah. I love the reminder of of speaking to and reaching smaller groups that have yeah. influence or reach, you know, whether it is, you know, the technicians or, you know, now this day and age influencers or whatever that means for us, it's our community, even yes. just having 50 of them in a room. Yes. And then those 50 will tell 20 of their friends. And it's real. And it's real. And, yeah. it's, and it takes patience. Like I, yes, like for, I guess if we thought about it in the long term, no, we never thought we would be where we are. And I'm sure you never well, maybe you did world domination, yeah. but um, I do think it's interesting where like, if we thought about how much work this would take, we always say, we're like, whoa, I, <laughs> I don't know if that, that might've overwhelmed us, yes. but it's, it's the patience and just like the, the, the moments with the people who are passionate about yeah. what you're doing, yes. like yep. that really give us this fuel for the long game, yeah. you know? And it builds your sense of purpose about what you're yes. doing. Yeah. And yes. also it's to build it slowly and carefully and specifically, it's much, much stronger. Yes. Because the emotions people have who have met you, seen you, heard you, and are part of your, as Dermalogica people call themselves a tribe, they're part of your tribe. It's real for them. This is not a fleeting chance, opportunity. Oh, I'm going to follow now. I'm going to unfollow next week. It's not like that. This is something that's tangible and real and it makes it very, very strong. Those who know, know, and those who don't know, don't matter. We would use that as our mantra. A lot of the time, Raymond said to us in one of our very first meetings, we have to be prepared to 
his words, piss off 80% and turn on 20%. We don't have to reach everyone, but the people we reach have to really care about it. It has to be an actual relationship. And so I will, I talk to people, well, especially in the early days, and they say, well, dermatologica, dermat, what? I've never heard of it. And I'd say, well, you probably haven't, but the people who have... It's, it's, you know, the, the London Times wrote a story about Dermalogica and said it was called The Woman Who Started a Cult because they said when people start using Dermalogica, they just won't stop. It's what's going on. And, and the whole article was about this piece of building community and people using a product or using a service or listening to a product, whatever it might be, that becomes part of their daily life and that makes it real and that is far stronger and has far much much more longevity and growth opportunity than something that's literally here today and gone tomorrow. Yeah, I think people, you know, and that's kind of when people fall out of the line of being inauthentic to themselves if they try and reach everyone. You know, if you're going to try and please everyone, reach everyone. If every single person is your target demographic, if we're thinking in that way, then what are you selling? Exactly. Or what 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 are you offering? And for our events too, it's like when we're doing the events on the smaller scale, like for me, it would shift to more of an ego thing for me if I'm looking at, okay, I'm only going to do something if it's 500 people. I'm only going to do something if it's a thousand. It's like my actual goal is to change the life of one or two people. Yes. There, you know, and, and the other is an added benefit. And, yeah. and the other is, is obviously something that I dream of, but it's like staying in that of I am here to serve and I'm here to facilitate whatever growth I can through whatever mm-hmm. modalities we bring is really like what we're trying to do. Absolutely. For years and years and years, from 1983 to 1989, I only taught classes of 12 and less. Mm-hmm. And there were many that were less than 12. And I taught every five days a week, six days a week, sometimes even seven days a week, once a month, I was, it was real education and it went on and on and on and on. And on year six, (laughs) you're starting to think, oh my goodness, is this really going anywhere? Yes, because I knew it was like sowing seeds. It was absolutely going to take seed, not everyone, but enough seeds were going to root. And this was really real because I was in the classroom with them and I could see what was happening. I could understand yeah. the impact. And when you up at the up at the coal face like that, you know exactly what's happening. And it was just a matter of time to get to that tipping point. And I think those are all the things that you build into your culture that will become your culture. You're playing the long game. You're not playing the short game. And I think that that has its own rewards because you become more and more convinced of the importance of what you're doing and your purpose. Your purpose becomes more and more clear to you the more you do it. And then you're not about a product, you're about a purpose. And once you're about a purpose, you can change the world. For you you know, if, if we think about, you know, your trajectory and it's like, it's like you're there. Do you, do you feel like that? Like, sometimes I wonder with entrepreneurship and people that I meet that I feel like I admire and I see them at the pinnacle of whatever it is that they're doing. And I know myself personally, do you shift that goal so that you never have reached it? Or do you feel like you're like, okay, I feel really good. Like, I feel like mm-hmm. I reached the exact goal and the vision that Raymond and I had in our Marina Del Rey apartment. 
it's interesting. I think you hone it down. So we started off by saying, so we had one mission statement and the mission statement was to define and bring respect and success to professional skin therapists through excellent education, innovative product and outstanding customer service. One sentence, but it kind of summed up this idea. And remember, this was when there was just the two of us and I was teaching, you know, half a dozen people in a classroom in Marina Del Rey next to the social security office. And yet that was our North Star that led us through. And oddly enough, first thing that happened was I was teaching every class. Then we started expanding and I was doing product development and teaching. And then I was training teachers. And then we were training teachers who would train other teachers because we had to expand. And you have to delegate. And you delegate everything which you someone else could do it better. Keep only that which only you can do. So if it came to talking about the brand story, going to New York and talking to press, it was me because I wanted to talk the brand story. I'm the only one that could talk as founder. Raymond and I were the only two. So it got really, really wide as we were building. And then as we got really great people on the teams, it started to come back to be narrow, narrow, narrow until now I spend the majority of my time at Domologica talking to people in a room, sharing the vision, talking about the journey, sharing the entrepreneurial vision that influenced our industry. So it's almost like going back the very beginning. And yet it's a completely different platform because it's a completely different resonance. It's a completely different size platform. And the same thing that made us successful, education and upskilling skin therapists is the same thing that is our purpose today. You know, fight financial independence through education is our purpose. And it's been, that's threaded. That thread has gone all the way through the company. So yes, I delegated a great deal over the years. And now I've come back to, I guess, what has always been my purpose, which is trying to make people as extraordinarily successful as they can through education and entrepreneurship. And I know you have two daughters. Yes. And um, I'm just curious too, like as you've built this business and and they get older and, and see what you're doing, like... Do, is there a is there a separation between mom and this incredible entrepreneur and how do you kind of kind of weave them together like what does that feel like as a mom mm. well, it's all jane yeah you know it, i raymond and i have never had the ability to separate work and personal life because it's all a big messy life mm-hmm. it just all interweaves you know if we come home and we're agonizing about you know, a distribution challenge or something, or a cap doesn't fit the bottle or something. You're in, you, you don't walk in the back door and say, okay, now I'm um, no more talks about bottles. You know, no, no, no. We're still talking about it while I'm, you know, making sausages yeah. and eggs or something, whatever it might be. And, and so our two daughters, uh, they're 25 and 20 now, they sat at the kitchen table as we'd be talking about the fact that, you know, a delivery of caps was late coming in from Europe or we the silk screen on a bottle was coming off because the sunblock chemical was reacting with the printing. Or They heard all of that. But they also knew that we were being driven by a bigger purpose. And both of them have incredibly well-developed senses of purpose. They're different than ours. And when we when we had children, we determined right from the beginning that they were not going to come into the company. 
that uh, they would have their own dreams, we would encourage their own dreams and their own ideas, and that they wouldn't have the what we saw as a burden of continuing a legacy that we'd built. And we just felt, you know, the, and and if by some crazy universe circumstance they said we, you know, I really want to have a skincare company, we'd help them, we'd we'd mentor them, we'd we'd help them, you know, with our contacts, but it wouldn't be Dermalogica because it would never be their outfit. They'd always be wearing our our clothes. And when you're an entrepreneur, you make the company like a bespoke suit. You cut it to fit yourself and your own strengths and weaknesses. And that's not theirs. So neither of them uh, wanted to come into the company. Both of them are highly creative and they're both completely different. Our eldest daughter is an artist and she lives in New York, highly creative. I ask her for all kinds of advice around creativity and, and you know, joining up the dots of 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 creativity. And our youngest daughter is studying criminology at the University of Maryland and wants to be in the FBI. So, you know, completely different people and uh, both of them driven by a sense of purpose and that they're here with with a mission. So I guess that's what they got from us. And, uh, you know, risk-taking and believing in yourself and never shrinking yourself I think that's critically important for everyone, maybe especially for women, because I think, you know, many things have circumstantially caused us to doubt ourselves or shrink ourselves or diminish ourselves or accept less than we are. And we absolutely cannot allow it. That, that, that time is over. We cannot allow it to happen. We're not giving up any ground. We are going to be authentically ourselves always and never shrink yourself, bring yourself back big every day. Oscar Wilde said, you know, be yourself. Everyone else is taken. I love that when you, when you spoke on that at our International Women's Day panel, that Mm -hmm. was so beautiful talking about not shrinking yourself as the advice that you would give to women nowadays. Mm -hmm. And I want to talk about something as it relates to that. So what does it feel like being, you know, you guys don't use the phrases for about beauty. It's not the beauty industry for you. So, and you're so confident and you're so it's just, I would never think, I would think that you were doing what you're doing, but I would never think it's related to beauty. So how have you made that distinction where you guys aren't really in that, that realm? And what do you think about like the beauty industry, like the word beautiful, like what Mm. conjures up in your mind when you think of that? Well, we decided at the beginning, you know, we weren't going to fall into the uh, trap of skincare and then we'll add makeup and then we'll add nails and then we'll add hair and then we'll try and please everybody. We wanted to have a very tight niche in professional skincare and we wanted to have a therapeutic effect with our products and our treatments. So for us, it was skin therapy. We never used the, we've never used the word beauty. And the reason's really simple because I came from a professional background. I've always been very interested in people whose skins were not at their healthiest condition. So cystic acne was always a, a, one of my big client groups because I feel strongly that they need you know, need a skin therapist and need support emotionally. It's a very, very difficult journey to make. And so for me, I know that that word beauty is incredibly marginalizing to someone who doesn't feel that that's them. And and it's not an aspirational goal. I think the word, 
I mean, I love saying, oh, do I think a sunset's beautiful? Of course I do. If I, do I see the beauty in my garden? Yes. Yeah, so it's not that I don't like that word specifically. I don't like it when it's applied to women. I don't like it when it objectifies us. Because if you think about it, the word beauty is incredibly ageist. Most small children, we don't think of it in that in that way. And mm-hmm. most elderly people don't feel that that word necessarily applies to them, especially if maybe they felt it did at one point. They'll, they feel they're no longer, you know, beautiful. I mean, that's not true at all. And it's to 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 pigeonhole us in this in this category is very objectifying. I think it's sexist. We only use the word around women. We don't use it about men. And so consequently, I think so many men over the age of 35 say to me, oh, your product, oh yeah, my wife uses your product. Oh my God, you know, well, what about you? You've got skin. And they're like, oh, well, you know, I don't use it. Well, why not? Because they think of it as beauty. But in fact, we're health care. So I'll say to those people, do do you wash your face at all? I mean, do you ever wash your body? Yes, of course I do. <laughs> oh, well, you're using skincare. Now, I might suggest something better, but you're using skincare. Do you use a deodorant? Yes, of course I do. Well, do you use a toothbrush and a toothpaste? Yes. Well, okay. Shampoo, conditioner. All right. That's the category we're in. We're in self-care. It has nothing to do with beauty. And I think it's the greatest disservice for the professional skincare market that we've ever been put in that that sort of lump. So maybe it applies if you're in cosmetics like makeup or lipstick. It's very temporary and it's very decorative and it's fleeting. But I just don't understand how it can apply to skincare because it's not about beauty. It's about optimum health of the largest organ of your body, which is your skin. I want your skin to be in its absolute optimum condition and health as part of your body. That's what I want for your body. I want it to be as strong and as fit as it can be. And that's what I want for your skin. So your skin, if you've had cystic acne, is not going to be the same as this other person's skin over here, perhaps, who's never suffered with that. And neither should it be. Your skin is your authenticity, but now we call it, you know, skin positivity, whatever you call it, just don't call it beauty because it's about, it's like your fingerprint. It's completely unique to you. No one's ever had your fingerprints before in the history of the planet and no one ever will. That's just a reminder of how unique your skin is. So let's not allow ourselves to get lumped into some subjective, sexist, discriminatory label of, you know, beauty. I just don't understand how it applies to someone's skin. And I think that we need to change it. So we just decided in our culture building, we just decided we're never going to use that term. We're not going to say beautiful. We're not going to say beauty. We're not going to say pampering, luxury, indulgence. We we don't use those words. They're not applicable to serious skin therapy. Mm. And so, because we never used it, we built a tribe that never used it either. And I'm one of the things I'm the most proud of is when I see new salons opening, it's very rare that they use the word beauty in the name. When I see product lines launching, it's very rare that I see it in skincare. We eliminated mineral oil and lanolin, SD alcohol, color, fragrance right from the very beginning. And only now I'm hearing, you know, clean beauty. I just wish it still didn't have the word beauty attached to it. Mm. It's clean self-care. It's clean food. It's clean wellness. It's clean skincare. It's, it, it should not have that tag of beauty attached to it. It has nothing to do with it. Wow. Yeah. That, like the, how brands tell us how we should feel about ourselves is so interesting because now I'm like in my mind down a little bit of a rabbit hole, just like, <laughs> you know, 
<laughs> Even walking past, like I think I think we were in London, and we walked past a oh. a window, and there was a you know they had a curvy um, oh a me. curvy uh, what, what what's it called a mannequin a curvy yeah. mannequin, and literally it was Krista and I, um, and we're like honestly, and it was like wow wow it was honestly she was just me I was like oh cool but it's you know what I'm saying like where where these brands think they're doing yeah. good by saying oh we carry curvy whatever and the models are literally. So normal yeah. exactly women yeah, yeah i don't need another label it's not yeah, yeah don't swap that label that i already told you i don't like for now this other label yes. stop labeling me mm-hmm. just yeah. stop putting me in a box yeah you know i think it's the conversation that we're having around gender i think it's the conversation we're having around labeling Absolutely. you know stop othering people we're all human beings, you know, we're all being the best that we can. And we're all working to have a life that we can be proud of. No one is not looking for that. Just give us all the equal opportunity to achieve it and stop labeling. And please, brands out there, don't think it's now the cool thing to use the new label. Just don't. Truly. Just Truly. talk about your 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 purpose, your brand, your, you know, what you do really well, what you care about. Just keep talking about that. The tribe will find you. Don't worry about giving them the right label that they will relate to you. Yeah, I wonder what that is. Is it because they want more press? Do they want more? Like, I don't know. Sometimes I think it's, it's like because they don't, the marketing teams don't actually know yeah. what that brand is. So they try and Give the brand a, a, a label that will apply to people with that. I don't know. I can't yeah. even explain it. It's like it. a shortcut. Yeah. You know, because with the brand mission and the story, if you yeah. understand that, then you don't need the label. No, you don't need the label. And I also think that, you know, we talk a lot about purpose in a brand, but it has to be authentic. You can't just Lego brick on a purpose. Like, oh, somebody said we need a purpose. Okay, so what should we support? Oh, we'll just Lego brick that on. If it has nothing to do with the way the brand was built or behaves or nothing to do with the behavior of the brand, then I'm not, I'm, first of all, I'm not going to remember it. Secondly, I'm not going to care about it because I don't believe you actually care about it. So dig into your story and what is it that really drove you to do what you've done? In that, in that big messy baby pile, there's the nugget of your purpose. It's there. Look for it and get hold of the founders if they're still alive and ask them about it if you don't know. But dig in and find it. The story of what built the, some of the you know longest standing brands are the most beautiful stories and many of them have been lost because you know the marketing labels took over and the sense of identity of that brand got lost and it's a big shame. You did mention, um, that was really beautiful. You did mention about acne, cystic acne. And I think a lot of girls in our community are really struggling right now with skin. You know, I, I see it in conversations in our Facebook group and yeah. um, people talk about it all the time. Like what, and what is your experience of the issues that contribute to, to that and what products, dermatologic products could they use that would help them with their skin therapy? Mm-hmm. Well, it's not just girls that suffer. Yes. It's, uh, you know, everybody that <laughs> We're like, suffers. don't label. And I'm like, just girls. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's okay because you know what? We all have habits, right? And we, yeah. we break our habits. So hopefully we, we move on. We use different language, that's all. But I think that 
and and in some regards, you know, if you if you feel more comfortable in society wearing makeup, it's easier to cover up than you know if you don't, and that's even harder. You're going out there with your bare face every day, and, and you're struggling. Well, it has huge effects because emotionally and socially, it has a devastating yeah. effect at the time in your life that you're you're most vulnerable. And I and I know that social media hasn't helped that one bit. It's actually made it incredibly worse. And so we've got, you know, a lower rate of teen pregnancy now but a higher rate of teen suicide what does that tell us you know we're not out there as much doing doing things and and yet you know we're we're at home and beating ourselves up and and self-loathing and that has to change it's not sustainable it's not a society that any of us want to live in neither should we and so every every skin has uh, an opportunity to come to its optimum level of health and wellness and it is different for every skin and it takes different lengths of time for every skin and I say it not just as a skin therapist who has taken care of clients who've struggled with acne but I as a mother who's both our daughters have struggled with it too and that's very isn't that ironic when they would go to school and people would say you should you know what you should really use Dermalogica it's fantastic and they'd be like yeah uh-huh, I know. <laughs> and yet their skin was always in the best condition it could be because acne is genetic, largely. It's a genetic thing that, that burns through the skin and 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 there's a timing issue. And yes, of course, we can improve it and help it, but there's no magic ingredient. So in the Dermalogica range, yes, of course, we've got products with benzoyl peroxide and salicylic acid and lactic acid and specifically designed for acne. And not only do we have products that you use at home, we have even more powerful products that are used in the treatment room by a skin therapist or by a, a clinical skin therapist who might be working in a dermatologist office and we make those just for people that are licensed so by going to a professional skin therapist and asking about your skin first of all I you will not be judged on your skin because we love skin and we love skin that has its own set of uniqueness and secondly we can access products that are of a different strength than the products you would use and buy off the shelf or at the counter so whatever line it is you you need that combination of professional and retail products to get the very, very best result. And within the Dermalogica, we have a number of products called Active, it's our Active Clearing line, and that's focused on specifically on adult acne and breakouts. And we have Clear Start, which is our subcategory brand, which is focused on on teen uh, acne specifically, which is a little different because teen acne can tend to burn out when you get to your early 20s, whereas adult acne, hormonally based, all acne is, and, and that can continue. I've also seen a rise in, in cosmetic acne, which is as a result of using specific products, which usually isn't pustular and cystic. It's more comedones, blackheads, milia, mm-hmm. whiteheads, and it's under the surface. And I think a lot of that is because people are just using the wrong products in the wrong sequence. Wow. You were cherry picking products. I see people buying, okay, I've got two primers, three highlighters. Um, I've got one cleanser, no exfoliant, and I don't use a mask. I'm like, okay, well, hang on. We've got to get back to a regimen there's something to be said for cleanse, tone, exfoliate, moisturize. And there's a system by which the skin as an organ is kept in its optimum health. And if you're suffocating the skin, if you're covering it with a lot of primers or elastomers or plasticizing agents, you're going to struggle with oil being released on the surface of the skin and removed. If you're wearing a lot of water repellent, water resistant, waterproof makeups or sunblocks, 
and you're not removing them with a specific cleanser, you're not removing the full residue from your skin. Dermalogica invented the double cleanse. We were teaching that in 1983 for the simple reason that if you were wearing heavier makeup, if you were wearing pan stick or pancake makeup, if you're wearing water resistant sunblocks, you have to cleanse twice. You have to use something that's going to solubilize oil and something that's then going to rinse off with water. So that was part of our credo because that was always how you cleanse the skin professionally. And we develop all our products as if it's because it is used by professional skin therapists. So every product you're going to use in Dermalogica has been developed with that professional market in mind. Wow. Yeah, I love the feeling of, because I've struggled with my skin for a while. Yeah, the, just the feeling of knowing that, and we've been into Dermalogica to have treatments done. And yeah, there is this sense of, you know, your skin is unique. Like mm-hmm. there is a way to optimize your skin for where you are right now in time in your kind of development of your skin or wherever it is. And it does create, for me at least, it's like this sense of peace. Like there is a timing to it all because I think we can, it is extremely emotional. So to just trust that as long as we're taking care of it in the best way we know how and creating that ritual around it, that there will be different seasons of your skin that, you know. Yeah, and every day it's different. I mean, every literally every day. Yeah, every month it's different. Mm -hmm. Every week it's different. And you need a bit of an emergency pack too so that, you know, okay, so when this happens and you really did wake up and there's a a new pimple or an irritated area or rosacea, what do you have in your toolkit that you can use when you can't, you know, rush off to a skin therapist or, you know, the skin therapist should be building that for you too. Right. You need your emergency kit. It's like, yes, I can go to the ER, but I need some band-aids at home. So you need that as well. And I think it's this idea of being, as you say, you know, looked after and you've got what you need and that skin therapist has your back. And it's a lot more than just knowing what product to recommend. It's about understanding the skin as well as understanding product because the two have to go together. Right, right. Yeah, just creating like a conscious consumer in that way, like yes. where you're just educated on what you are buying and yes. it's empowering. And why it's right it. for you. Yes. Yeah. If you're only getting your examples from YouTube, of, you know, from the internet, it's not even your skin. Mm-hmm. And and what is the qualification of, of the person recommending? Right. And I think that all those things you have to really think about. And and you, there's nothing that substitutes somebody looking at your skin, touching your skin. How your skin looks and how it feels are completely different. How warm is it? How hot is it? How quickly do you flush? Do you flush with vitamins? If you take niacin, mm-hmm. does your skin become flushed? How quickly does it go down? That's going to guide me as to how reactive your skin is and whether this type of foaming cleanser would be better for you or a gel type cleanser, or down to the last thing. So ultimately it's fun. It's great to watch tutorials online, but at some point somebody has to look at you your skin and decide with you because you're living inside it what are the things that your skin is reactive to some people are reactive to vitamins some people are not some people get dry skin around the mouth from a plaque removing toothpaste other people don't some people get you know uh, irritation from color in a product fragrance and others don't you have to figure it out with someone who understands skin and product so we're going to take a break and you're going to look at our skin <laughs> and we're going to talk about our skin specifically. This has been amazing. Yeah. I would love to, to end with what you're looking forward to, to this year. 
This year, I'm very much looking forward to expanding uh, our reach to entrepreneurs and to skin therapists at Dermalogica. We're determined we have our new online uh, education program around oh, entrepreneurship wow. launching. It uh, launches uh, this year, 2019, and it's an online education program for people in the industry who do, they, do, they don't necessarily have to use Dermalogica. They don't necessarily have to come to class. This is a business entrepreneurship training. Training that is accessible completely free of charge, available to anyone uh, you know who can access it, and is working in the salon professional industry. And uh, for me personally, uh, I'm very committed to funding and supporting local entrepreneurs with uh, Found LA, which is our nonprofit piece of the Werwin Foundation. And collectively, uh, hopefully, we'll reach a lot of people who need help, both not just with their skin, but also with their education in business. And if we've done that, then it'll be a great year. Wow. Incredible. So yeah. found LA. Yeah. Great. Perfect. Yeah. Thank you so much. You're so, you're a powerhouse. It's insane. Yeah. Thank love you, being man. around you. We love Truly. being around you. Thank we you. love the team. I've worked with you guys for years now. I have always loved your team Thank you. through my blog and Jenny and everyone, you know, that's here. They've just been a true delight and it's such a, you know, can be so attributed to the culture that you do Thank provide you. everyone. That. And it is funny you say the last thing, the trust thing. Because I remember when I first was approached by your team to work together, I was already using the products, but I was like, I do trust Dermalogic and I didn't know why. I'm like, I, they're really good. But, you know, I, I hadn't, <laughs> it, it's a funny thing that you say that because it is true. You know, it's like, yeah. I think it's, it's like a when, staple. When you eat food that somebody loved cooking, you yeah. consider you're eating the love, right? You feel the yeah. love. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's so um, true. Yeah, and you guys can use code ALMOST30 for a discount on Dermalogica products. And if you're coming to join us on tour, you get some Dermalogica goodies, which is so exciting. Yeah, we're so grateful. Such a good fit. Yes. Thank you so much for being here. And thank you everyone for listening. We love you and we'll see you next time. See you next time. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much to Jane for joining us. It was such a delight to have her in person. Yeah. Huge fans of Dermalogica. They are on tour with us. So if you're coming to one of the tour stops, you will get some Dermalogica products. And if you're interested, my favorite is the pre-cleanse. It takes mm. off all my makeup. It's amazing. So the I'll best. use that before I exfoliate. I do like the micro exfoliant. I love all their body products and they just have a great range of products that I've been using for years and years intermittently without with other products that I love. Yeah. I use the active moist mask. Uh, so you leave it on for 15 minutes and... huh. Your face is moisturized forever. It's yeah. so good. It's so, so good. So thanks again. And we have a review of the week. Thank you so much for taking the time to write these reviews. It just gives us energy. Truly. We read every single one of them. Yeah, thank you. Almost 30 and ready. Five stars. I recently turned 28 and I've been struggling with the thought that in two very short years, I will be 30. I feel like I should have accomplished so much by the time I'm 30, just like Rachel in that Friends episode. I'm not married. I don't have any children. I'm not happy with my health or where I live. The only thing I'm sure about is my career. And even that can get overwhelming to consider when I think of my 30s. I found your podcast a few months ago and fell in love. This podcast makes me feel seen. It provides me with tangible steps towards curating a future I love. And it provides me with a community of strong and incredible women who feel the same way I do. It pushes me to consider spirituality and holistic health outside of what I thought I knew. And I cannot wait to truly live my life for me. Thank you, ladies. That's from Brianna. Thank you so much, Brianna. 
That is so That's sweet. the whole point. It's feeling less alone. Mm-hmm. Understanding that no matter where you are in your process, it's right and it's divine. And, and it's interesting with life. You know, sometimes you have one part, one part figure out, figured out and then the other part falls apart. Yeah. And then it kind of rotates. Totally. So, you know, it's a, rare, it's a rare opportunity and time to have everything working at once. And there's always kind of something that seems to be. I agree. And it's taking away the shame of not being where you thought you would be. You know, there's, there's so much pressure and expectation, but if we just lift that and see and meet ourselves where we are and where others are, it's, you know, it's a beautiful thing to be a part of and to witness. So thank you for sharing. That means the world. All right, y'all. We love you so, so much. You can catch us on tour, almost30podcast.com slash tour. It's where you can find the tickets. And as always, we're here for you. So anything you need, join the secret Facebook group. We're in there every single day and we'll see you next time. See you next time. Love you so much. Bye.